This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by Paul Tatongi. He's the author of the incredible new book, The Refugee Ocean. This is a wonderfully woven together, beautiful story of love and family and loss, grief, and so much more. I can't wait for people to read it. So thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's really, it's very exciting to talk with you. We just had a long conversation about the pronunciation of my name. So that is interesting. Yeah, I whenever I start with an author whose name I'm, you know, not sure on because it's not familiar to me and because I'm from the Midwest and have a tendency to do some crazy <laughs> things with vowels, uh if I'm not in, innately sure of how to say it and if someone doesn't say it to me, I never want to like assume I know how to say someone's name or the way that they'd like it to be said, so it's always a bit of a conversation at the start. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, so the name so it's the, my first name is Latvian because my mom was born in Latvia and my last name is uh, Turkish, sort of Turkish Syrian origin. And my dad was born in the Middle East and in Cairo and then they came to the US. So the first name is Pauls, but in Latvian, if you use the name, like you say, hey, Paul, you'd say Pauli or you change it. You change it like all the time. So Paulum, Paulu, Pauli. So Paul is fine. I don't yeah, expect I, you to be fluent in, in Latvian. I always think that when language does that, it's really interesting. I have a really good friend who's Bosnian, and they do that in yes. that language as well. So it's hard sometimes when you're like listening to a conversation, you're like, wait, that's not your name, because it's a completely different set of structure. And I'm sure it's an, a challenging thing to sort of navigate mixing those cultures and languages together. Yes. <clears throat> in writing, too. Yes. But you managed to do some incredible things with mixing culture and music and language in your book. I was just blown away with the way that you can connect these stories and you have these characters that are so easy to just fall right in line with. And you care so immediately for all of the people that you've introduced us to in this book. But before I get a little too ahead of myself, I know this is probably always the dreaded question of, can you set up your book for us? Can you give us a little insight into the refugee ocean? Yeah. So the book is the story of two refugees who are separated by 70 years. Uh, both my parents were refugees to the United States. Uh, my mom came from Latvia and my dad was born in Cairo. They were Syrian refugees who spent about 20 years in Egypt and then came to the United States on a Syrian refugee visa. So it's about two refugees separated by uh, 70 years, and they are each musicians. And um, it's really about the ways that their lives have parallels, that uh, war and grief and violence and trauma recur generation after generation, and uh, the ways that music can not necessarily ease that but speak to that trauma. And so they're, each of the characters are musicians, and then um, their stories come together in the end of the book after alternating uh, section by section for the first 250 pages, roughly. 
And the characters that you have created, they each have such distinct voices. And even when you're going back and forth between sort of these threads of their own stories, it feels so seamless to move between one or the other. But I always wonder when you're writing a book that has sort of these interconnected stories, if there was a voice that came to you first that sort of set everything up and you built around it, or did you have more of the plot and the characters came from there? I always want to know where it comes from. No, these two characters definitely uh, came to me first. So Naeem, the the boy, um, he's a, a refugee from Aleppo, where my grandfather was born. You know, when that conflict uh, began in 2012, as part of sort of the quote-unquote Arab Spring, I had just started sort of traveling. I went back to Egypt with my dad. Um, he went back for the first time in 60 years, and we went back together with my sister and I and and him. I really wanted to go to Syria and to visit our family. And then the war happened and it, it just was so difficult and so heartbreaking. And I was very closely tied to it, following it. And I started imagining a, a character who um, was fleeing from that violence and had lost something um, and ended up in in refugee camp, a refugee camp and uh, coming to the United States. So that's Naeem. And so he was very much in my imagination the whole time. And then Marguerite um, is very much based on my aunts. I had four uh, aunts and, you know, she, she was a uh, cousin of mine. It's kind of an interesting backstory. I don't know how much I should go into that. It's up to you. I mean, I would love to hear because the character, the family, it, the name is the same or, you know, to your own in the book. And I was wondering the whole time I was reading sort of what that connection is and how that all works together. She's well, so she's a cousin of mine, of course, in the, on the first page, it says that these are based on, not based on real people. There's that disclaimer in the very beginning. <laughs> um, the official disclaimer. So when I published uh, an essay in the New Yorker called Leaving Aleppo, a a cousin of mine wrote to me and said, "Hey, do you know anything about our cousin Marguerite?" And she had some facts about her life. And so I didn't, but I started to do research and I found the ship's manifest um that had her coming from Beirut in 1948 to Cuba with Adolfo Castillo, and uh, which is kind of a challenging character name to inherit. It was there. And, and as soon as I saw the manifest, the story started to spring into my mind. And then I, I knew I wanted to write about music, and, I, and Naeem was all, already a musician. And so um, I started to think about the ways that, that Marguerite could reflect that, and the way that her story could speak to his. I was always amazed by the women in my family, my aunts and my grandmother, you know, my grandmother spoke four languages and, you know, and, and, but they, they grew, grew up in this patriarchal society that really constrained them and, um, channeled all of their talents and ambitions into solely, um, raising a family, which is wonderful in a lot of ways, but also, um, such a huge loss, I think. And, so I was I was always conscious of that in my own family, like my aunts who were um, 
such incredible people and and so widely talented and so um so i i I don't know that's sort of that was the genesis of of that character for me and the way that you connected them through music and through these sort of similar but different experiences really transported me i was so i love marguerite i mean i love naeem and his mother but marguerite is just such an incredible character she really came to life through these struggles that she has and the way that she just faces everything head on even when i think most people would have just had to give in and to you know sort of give up on certain things but she really just commits to this life that she wants to live at sometimes the greatest costs right so she's so she is betrayed within her family and um and then she makes this single choice right and that moment of choice was the thing that I was trying to motivate the most and to sort of write toward this choice that she makes. I won't go into it too much, but that moment and that decision uh, alters alters her life forever. You know, it's kind of, I think I actually have been thinking about this a lot and I, I don't know if I should say this, but my mom who will probably watch this, but so, so my, my parents, you know, they, they met and they were from such vastly different cultures and you know my mom's latvian and and my dad is egyptian and and they they had a really tough sort of beginning to their relationship right and so oh i can't believe i'm going to tell this story but um so but so my mom she had there was this moment where she wanted to to call call it off like she was thinking to herself okay i'm going to break up with joe like i i have to do this so they went to this place in seattle called green lake and they sat down on a bench and she was thinking like, okay, I have to break up with him. You know, it's like 1968. And she's like, I don't know if this is working. You know, we're from such different backgrounds and we're, you know, and he said to her, what if I told you we'll get married right now, we'll get in the car and we'll drive to Las Vegas right now and we'll get married. And would you say yes? <laughs> and she said, Yes. And they got in the car and they drove to Vegas and they eloped, you know? And I've always thought about this. I'm like, oh my God, this single moment completely transformed her entire life. This decision that she made for uh, better or worse, <laughs> that was something in my mind that I was like, oh, wow, what a, what a, what a moment, like to have somebody facing a choice of that magnitude. And then you have to choose one thing or the other. These moments of transition and of change are so prevalent in this work. I mean, we all have those things in our lives, but to sort of pare it down to like, this is the moment that will change your life. Because Naeem has a similar moment right at the start of the book where one singular moment on a day that seemed like any other day changes his entire trajectory and his entire life. Yeah. And seeing how those pieces fit together and the aftermaths and putting what you can, where you can, and being who you can be in these incredibly turbulent times, both for inner self and in the world that's around them. That's, I mean, some great fiction comes out of those moments and some great understanding and insight into the human experience. Right. I mean, well, thank you, but uh, first of all, but like, but I mean, that's, you know, that's the that's in some ways the the crucible of war, right? When you have your society torn apart by violence, 
all of these choices that you make that are seemingly small choices uh, can lead to cat catastrophe so easily. I was just in Syria, you know, for I went for Harper's Magazine and um, and last month the country's devastated, destroyed cities just are rubble. Um, and you even now, you know, these years later, um, and you feel the fragility of your body. You know, I, I felt like I in, in on a, in a scene of complete devastation when the city, the fabric of the city has been torn apart. Literally, buildings have just been ripped open. Um, you know, the whole landscape has been destroyed. Um, you feel how fragile your hum your human body is. And it's not something that we think about a lot because we are not exposed to that kind of situation in the in the US. And um, it definitely... Um, the vulnerability of especially children um, in a situation like that in a war. Um, it's something that I've kind of always thought about. And, and I felt it really powerfully when I was there just recently. I think that's something that fiction and novels is so, it really brings a new light to a lot of things. It's such a good way to understand an experience, to understand something that is, foreign to us, unfamiliar. I think, you know, it's one thing to sort of watch movies or TV where everything sort of is barraged at you and you you do feel that sympathy, but it's more of a sort of a gut reaction. But I think when you have to read something and you bring all of your own self to it and you have to sort of construct the images and the feeling, it forces you to think a little bit deeper on on a lot of these big issues, especially uh, I think for me going through it this idea of the refugee experience is so varied. And I think a lot of times we get a very narrow perspective on, on what that looks like and who that is. But to sort of expand and to understand there are so many different experiences from people coming all over the world, it, it really forces us to look a little bit deeper at ourselves and how what we bring to a story like this for people who have experienced it will read something entirely different to someone who's not familiar with it. Yeah, I mean I I I love that idea. I mean, I think that the that when you're with with fiction, you often are deeply within the internal uh within the psychology of these characters. And so you're grappling with um thoughts in a way that you don't necessarily always do in film. Sometimes you can, obviously. Um, but I think that the the psychology of the characters and thinking about them and and putting yourself into their moral dilemmas and imagining, you know, with empathy if it's successful, um, how would I, how would this feel if it were me? Um, I think that that is that's something that uh, that fiction can can do that that it's really special, very powerful um, in my mind anyway. And I think especially I imagine for you getting to sort of have a lot of your own family connection and being able to sort of include these figures from your life, but also just to sort of understand that experience a little better. It really translates to people who are reading it, who are coming to it from all different aspects and all different experiences. Well, I, I mean, I'm 
often sort of haunted by this idea of the potential lives that, you know, certainly my father would have had if he had stayed in the culture where he was born and raised, what would his life had been like? He came to the United States at almost 15. He, um, you know, he didn't speak any English and he was just kind of thrown into, you know, first Bakersfield, California, and then North Hollywood. Um, and so, you know, I often think, well, what if his dad hadn't made that choice for him and taken him to across the world to, to just a totally new society and context? And who is the person that he would have become? And then, and then when you have a family like mine, where it was just atomized it, by the Second World War on both sides of the family, and it's all over the world, literally. I constantly think like, well, I grew up in this context. It's a historical accident that I speak English. I'm the first person on either side of my family to speak, you know, English natively. Um, and and in thousands of years or however many years you go back. And, um, you know, what would my life uh, or a version of my life had been like in all of these different places, you know, where my where my family lives, both sides, the Latvian family and the sort of middle eastern side of the family so so it's something that that i think about and and uh as a fiction writer i i kind of return to it again and again and i often because these stories of of um immigration were such a huge part of my um growing up uh i i sort of inescapably unfortunately or fortunately who knows uh write about yeah, immigration, especially to the U.S., all the time. You know, it's kind of the only thing I'm writing about in some ways, but which kind of gets depressing. And I don't, I don't even know that I'm just repeating it. And then I'm like halfway through a project that I'm like, oh, I'm writing about that same theme again. So it's like. But within within this, there's so much that I mean. One of the things you were just talking about family, and I think something that I kept coming back to while reading it was this idea of family in all of its varied forms. I mean, you've got biological family, for better or worse on that. There are, you know, really strong familiar bonds, like Naeem and his mother. And then there's some not so strong familiar bonds in Marguerite's case and others. But I think then there's also these families that people choose and the families that you find and the families that you build yourself. And I think going through that, I think it probably does have a very core connection to an immigrant experience, but I think it's also a great entry point for people who don't have that background that they can come to and understand, oh, this is so familiar to me. And it helps them sort of contextualize the rest of the story as well. Mm -hmm. you, readers, you mean like, uh, yes. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's true. It's, um, I have this old fashioned humanist belief in the sort of universality of human experience, you know, and, um, that at a really deep fundamental level, we're the same person. And, you know, I know that's something that is not um, super popular, maybe as an idea right now, but I believe it. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's a product of the time and the, this, you know, public school system I was raised in. Um, but I really do believe that. And so then that is reflected in my, my writing. I think as well, like reading is such a connecting experience. Like whenever someone says, 
that they find reading to be solitary or like a lonely activity. I think like for me, that's such the opposite because I, it's the thing that connects me the most with the world and with people I know and people I don't know. So to find anything in a story that you can have that connection with and to share that with someone else, I think that's the magic of, I mean, magic of reading sounds a little, you know, what, you know, maybe. But little- no, but totally. I, I love it. I absolutely, I think it's totally true. I, I, I even feel a affinity or connection with authors who've been, you know, dead for however many years, you know, sometimes centuries, just reading their work and then sitting there and thinking about them writing it. You know, I, that's why, like, I went to UVA and I saw the original manuscript of uh, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And it was just incredible. It looked exactly the way that you would imagine it, like chaotic, written on loose leaf paper and, you know, scrawled in pen, uh, you know, and it was incredible to think about him producing that work, you know, however many years ago and sitting there and, uh, you know, the, the, the juncture of his uh, pen and the paper. Yeah, I feel that connection to writers from the past all the time. And then to characters, obviously, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think music is the other big thing that can do that. And you have connected music so like innately with this book. It's so ingrained. These characters are musicians, but there's also just a musicality, I think, to the way the stories weave together. It's very, you know, it, it shows what it's trying to do. And I think so often in the in our stories these days, we have things get a little disconnected feeling. I think it's so easy now to feel disconnected from others and from, you know, the world around us, because while we are very globalized now, we're also a little isolated, especially over the past few years. But I think music is one of the things that really breaks through that. Yeah. Music and art and yeah, reading literature, uh, that common shared experience, that common vocabulary. It's uh, that, I think that's why, I think that's why, books um are so are kind of so tough to sell in a way quote unquote you know because it's like it's really tough to market books because i think that there's this connection um between people that happens when someone says hey you have to read this book it's incredible like it's amazing it's beautiful um you know, uh, and then, and it's very personal and a, a personal bond in this way. And so I think that you, in that kind of um, connection, that moment of connection, there is something really kind of cool and, and important about uh, being a person. And, and yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of my adult life working in bookstores and doing yeah. exactly that. And it right. is one of the best things when you can, when someone like, asks you about a book or they say, you know, just, I want to read like a great thing. And you just know the title you want to suggest and it works and you can have that connection. And so often people will come back in and be like, I read that book. I loved it. And that sort of connection and that community that comes around reading is so much fun. And it's why we all do it. Right. I think it's so many, why so many of us read. And I'd imagine it's why so many of us write. Yes, absolutely. And it's why I, I love teaching too. You know, it's been a little more challenging since COVID, but like, but yes, uh, encountering those works of literature uh, it, with students who are often reading them for the first time. And, you know, 
they read a Jamaica Kincaid story and their mind is blown or so many um, different writers and, and to, to encounter those works of literature with students in the classroom is a really incredible thing. Yeah. It's kind of similar to, to book selling. <laughs> it is. It really is. Honestly, it's like, yeah, it's all that connection is just the reason to do it. I mean, especially when you really love a book and you get to sort of tell someone about it and they actually read it. Cause I think like if you tell someone you like a song or a TV show, it's a lot easier to like skim through. And if you aren't into it, you just stop it. But if someone takes the time to read a book that you've recommended, I mean, that's a commitment. That's a real sign of, of love. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's interesting how they kind of move through our culture too. Um, I'm thinking of the Richard Powers book, you know, the overstory, the, there was this time where, um, or Tony Doerr's book, All the Light We Cannot See, you know, where all of a sudden, you know, six people were recommending the same book to me and, um, mm-hmm. and saying, oh, you have to read it. And it's, it's interesting to think about that and how I, it feels very organic and, and real and, you, you know, not driven by anything other than human connection. Right. And the way that it sort of filters out and everyone is clamoring for the same thing. And, but then it also sparks these really great conversations. And I think it's what keeps people coming back to these works and to, you know, wanting to create more great literature. I mean, I think there's been, I mean, even just in the past like 10 years, I think there's been some really incredible things that have come out and, some really incredible works that we're all going to see for a long time, especially if you're teaching, I can imagine it's a great time to sort of get to shape what other people are going to be looking at for the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, you know, for sure. And, and at its best, you hope that you can have an effect for many decades. Um, You know, it doesn't always work, but, but, Sometimes I'm sure it sometimes it does. Um, and all we need is that sometimes, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Do you find that your teaching inspires your writing or do you like learn things from your students that you sort of tr- transfer over into the work that you do? Um, I think uh, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Because through the process of teaching people how to write, I have learned so much about writing. You know, I often feel like I have two full-time jobs. I'm a a teacher at Lewis and Clark College, and I'm a writer, and then I'm also a dad and a partner for my wife, and so it um, it 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 feels like a lot, but I definitely I do love it. I do love it. I can imagine that you've got a lot going on, but uh-huh. I, I mean that seems that's a huge like endeavor for anyone, and writing a book is a huge endeavor for anyone. But it felt like there was so much of your own heart and soul in this book. I just have to know, like, it feels like a lot of time went into this project because it is, there's also a lot of, like, I would imagine there's research and things and, you know, all that stuff that has to come into this. And it just feels like this might've been a little bit of a labor of love. Oh yeah. Uh, Seven years. It took me seven years. Um, So I started it uh, at a a retreat in, uh, at Hawthornden Castle, actually in, in Scotland, which is this amazing writing retreat. And, um, and where I was, a, I got a fellowship for a, for a month and I wrote the first draft by hand. And then, uh, I had a, a student who actually typed it up for me, which was amazing. Uh, Will, if you're watching this, thank you. 
Those are the perks of having students while you're writing. Totally. And he's, he's getting married actually, uh, on like in a week and a half. Um, so, or maybe two weeks right after the book comes out, he typed up and then I sort of went through draft after draft after draft, you know, the original, uh, I probably, this is somewhat embarrassing, but the original uh, working title was uh, No War, No Peace, <laughs> which actually I have it right here. War and Peace, but So that was <laughs> the original uh, working title, but um, yeah. I like The Refugee Ocean. I think like that the was the Ocean. good. That was a better choice. Yeah. yeah. As you were going through this long process and like compiling all of this and, and rewriting and rewriting. Did anything surprise you as you were working on this? Did anything sort of change from one to the other as you were working that you didn't expect? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I could never have predicted where, uh, where the book would be ultimately, where it would reach. Um, I worked with my editor, Tim O'Connell, um, on, you know, uh, a few drafts. Um, Bill Clegg, my agent, was also incredibly helpful. And I'm married to a novelist. Um, so Peyton Marshall, um, her first novel came out from FSG in 2014. I had all of these really kind of brilliant people reading my drafts, which is amazing. And I'm very lucky. Um, but also it led to all kinds of changes. So I could have never predicted where um, the final draft would be. There are four main characters who uh, are no longer in the book. So, so I, I probably, I would imagine I wrote probably 400,000 words. You know, the final book is about 93,000, I think. So probably at least three more books <laughs> worth of cut. That's a lot. But I yeah. mean, you got down to something incredible. And but I can only imagine that that's a lot of, of um, work, but also a lot of like, tough choices to make to have to be like, okay, I guess this is, this is the way it's going to have to be. I imagine you get a little connect, I would get very connected and like attached to certain things. But maybe that's why I don't write but because I would never be able to. Oh, man, there's this whole there was like a whole subplot. I mean, in Cuba with like the, there was a whole thing with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was, I mean, there were just so many other things that I pulled out of the narrative, you know, and, um, and so that these uh, final sort of braids could, uh, ultimately, when, as I pulled things out, what was really interesting is that as I pulled things out, what I saw was that these two braids kept um, coming into uh, sharper and sharper relief. And so I sort of saw these characters more clearly as I pulled stuff out around them. Um, and, you know, it was a very carefully plotted and laborious process. You know, I really worked on the structure for, um, you know, uh, in, in many ways, making outlines, everything you can imagine, note cards, you know. I love a note card or an outline. Oh, yeah. That's that's the way my brain works. Yeah, note cards. They're the they're the best. It really shows. I mean, the connection between those two stories, I can't imagine. Like you don't I don't want more storylines. I just wanted more of those pieces that were in there. So I think I think probably those cuts were all a pretty good call. I have to ask because I always want to know in these interviews, 
Who are your literary influences? Who sort of shapes you as a reader, as a writer, and some things that you sort of you'd recommend for our listeners? Yeah. Well, so I have kind of a slightly unusual um, sort of group of favorite writers. Um, I really love, there's a Uruguayan, uh, I guess, his, historian, journalist, uh, fiction writer, uh, illustrator named Eduardo Galeano. And um, he is, I think, my favorite um, writer, if you had to pick that kind of a thing. The Book of Embraces is amazing. Um, he has a great book called Soccer in Sun and Shadow. Um, he's probably most known for um, Memory of Fire. Um, he, he's a he's a really incredible writer, and uh, he passed away about I think five years ago. So um, I love his work. Um, I really like the Italian writer Italo Calvino as well, um, and uh, Virginia Woolf. Um, Mrs. Dalloway is, I think, just like a perfect novel, like a beautiful, perfect novel. You know, I could go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, you know, there are so many, so many, I have lots of friends in the writing world as well, um, but I'm going to stick with the dead writers. Sure. It's a safe, <laughs> it's a safe place to sit. <laughs> safe place. I mean, I, obviously Toni Morrison is just like, amazing and i learned so much reading those novels um yeah i could i mean this is a question that i could just start now yeah. and in an hour i would still be talking of course i mean and that's i think how all of us feel but you know i always need i always want a snapshot into people's yes. because usually it helps me pad out my already seven thousand book long wow. list of things yeah. to read to read so yeah yeah i love i love um language that's beautiful and surprising you know i really i don't it's funny i i read for i really read for the language and for the the sound of it um and and for the beautiful image you know that's and and so um with calvino and galliano you know that depends on the translation as well um so it's so it's it's yeah it's it's interesting i um that's what i'm looking for really absolutely i think that sometimes i love the language and the voice that comes through i think if those pieces are there i'm kind of like whatever the plot is i can right. get on board i just right. need that to be there right yeah 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 i think that not you know what's interesting is not a lot uh, i mean not i don't know how many but there's definitely readers who don't read that way at all at all at all at all they're reading for you know, and I do too, but they're reading for like the deep emotional life of the characters, um, which I, I am. I'm thinking about that all the time. And I'm reading about, you know, George Eliot is incredible at, at that exact thing. Or they're reading for plot. They really are reading for plot, you know, but every reader is different. Yeah, that's why there's so much great stuff out there. There's so much, there's something I... I always do, like as a bookseller, I think one of like the biggest things that I've always thought is there really is a book for everyone. Even people who think that there isn't or that they haven't found it yet, like it's there. There's just a lot to get through if you're not sure, but <laughs> people will find it. So much. So many books. It never ends. It does. I have to know. Yeah. <laughs> I have to know as well if you miss these characters once you sort of finished writing them, like as soon as I was done, I immediately was like, I just hope Naeem is okay. 
Like that was my thought as I was finishing the book is that I just want him to be okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that section where he's on the, the baseball diamond and he's looking out at the, you know, and then he's sinking into his memories and he's imagining both two, two timelines at once, which was pretty tricky to write. Um, but yeah, that moment, um, you know, yeah, it had a big emotional impact on me. And, and I, I, I think about, um, yeah, I think about him and I wonder, do writers say that? I mean, what do they say? Do they mostly say like, oh no, or do they say yes? Or what do they? I mean, I think a lot of people, most people I think end up do missing. I mean, some people I have seen or heard people be like, nope, when I was done, I was ready to be done with this. But I think, I think a lot of, you know, it, it becomes such a part of you and it becomes such a part, you know, that I think I, I would imagine that I would miss these characters that I had put so much of my, you know, heart and soul into. Yeah, the lives, the ones whose lives are still in progress, especially you're still, I'm curious, you know, what happens, you know, what happens to them um, if I follow them a little farther? Yeah. But I think for all of our listeners and all of our readers, they have so much still ahead of them because the Refugee Ocean is going to be out now. And I can't wait for people to get their hands on it because this is truly one of the most beautiful books. I am so grateful that you joined us today to talk about the refugee ocean. Thank you. It was really a nice conversation. Thanks for for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.